So we're going to spend some time now looking at the scriptures together. We're wrapping up our series in Genesis through the Joseph stories, God's purposes in a dysfunctional world. So if you have a Bible, open your Bible to Genesis chapter 50. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some under the chairs. You can grab one of those black Bibles and we should be around page 36 in the black Bibles. It's the last chapter of Genesis. The series we've called God's Purposes in a Dysfunctional World and we got the idea for that subtitle from this last little part of Genesis. So this last sermon we're calling also God's Purposes in Dysfunction. One of the things that we wrestle with is something that we've seen again and again in these Joseph stories is that Joseph goes through really terrible stuff, but he knows that God is with him. And so that's a paradox of the Christian faith, that somehow this world is a world of dysfunction, it's a world of evil, it's a world of brokenness, and yet we can trust that God is good. And that's a tension that we live with, and it's hard to describe. It's, like I said, a paradox, a tension of two things that don't seem to go together, uh, but we can trust even though this world is so dysfunctional, so messed up, and even though you and I deal with the dysfunction of a family dysfunction or problems at work or problems just with nature and the brokenness of the world, we can still trust that God is good. And Joseph has been pointing us to that again and again. Um, so we're going to be reading in Genesis chapter 50. Uh, I wanted to start, though, just talking about something that happened to me years ago. Uh, I was a junior high youth pastor at a church in Temple when I was 24 years old. Um, and I would take the kids often on retreats. I would teach them Bible studies and do different activities with them. One weekend, I was taking them on a retreat to Enchanted Rock State Park, which if you're new to the area, you've got to go to Enchanted Rock State Park. It's my favorite state park. It's a great park. And so I was taking them there for a camping trip. You can hike. It's basically a, a giant dome of granite. Um, so you would say either a really big hill or a very small mountain. It takes about 30 minutes to hike to the top, and there are boulders that you can climb on and stuff. So I've got 20 to 30 junior high kids. We're hiking to the top. Um, and before we went, I'd seen that there was a chance that we would have bad weather, right? Really cold weather, uh, rainy weather, maybe freezing. So I was a little worried before we got there. But the, the day of the trip, it was going to be sunny and beautiful, right? And so we're hiking up to the top of this hill. It is sunny and beautiful. I'm thinking, man, we beat the crazy Texas weather. We're enjoying a beautiful day, right? But as we get to the, to the top of the peak, I hear this weird noise, and then I can see in the distance this black curtain of storm blowing at us. And it's like this roar just coming at us. And I kind of look at one of the adult leaders, one of the other adult leaders, and I'm like, we better run, right? Like we had just gotten to the top and this black cloud of storm is coming at us. I'm like we got to turn and go the other way. So we start running. I'm like, come on kids, let's go. And I'm, you know, bringing these 20 or 30 kids who have been entrusted into my care as a 24 year old man, which is, that in itself is crazy. But anyway, I'm like, come on, guys. And so we're running the other way, going back down this mountainside, running down this granite rock hilltop. But the storm catches us, and it is just slamming into us. And uh, it's hailstorm. Hail, it's like these little um, marble-sized pieces of ice, right? And it's not just falling down like you see it do sometimes, but it's like shooting at us like laser beams, right? So we're running as fast as we can, and it's just pelting us in the back. And we've got red whelps all over our backs, and it's stinging, and it's hurting. And so finally, we all just kind of give up. The kids are screaming and crying. And so they all lay down, and the adult leaders, we just like lay over them and are trying to protect them so they don't get killed by giant, you know, we're thinking maybe softball hail is going to come or something. So we're covering them up. 
We can't really hear each other. I can just kind of hear the whimpers and the cries and the screams of the children because the storm is so loud and it's so dark and we can't see anything. We can't see where we're going anywhere. That's part of why we had to stop. Um, and I'm thinking it was really warm and sunny and now we've got this cold ice blowing on us. And I know enough about weather to know that in Texas, when you have a warm front and a cold front, that makes tornadoes, right? So I'm thinking, I think a tornado is about to blow over us, right? And so I start screaming at the other adult leaders, like, I'm going to go down and try to find the boulder. I know there are boulders down there that we could hide underneath, right? There are giant boulders with big cracks. We could, like, hide under a boulder and maybe survive a tornado. So everybody's screaming and crying, getting pelted by the hail. I'm like, I'm going to run down to the boulder and then come back so I can lead everybody down there, right? Because we can't see anything. And they're like, okay. And so I run down there, and I'm, like, slipping and sliding down the rock, and I find the boulder, I come back to the, to the rest of the group who's laying there on the rock crying and screaming, and right when I get back to them, the storm just stops. It's just over. And it's now sunny again, <laughs> and it's beautiful, and we're all kind of like shaking. Like I said, we've got red spots all over our backs and our necks, and we're shaking, and everybody's freaked out. But the weather is beautiful and calm, and, and we walk down the hill, we dry off, and everything's fine. And we have this great weekend on the rock and the storm just completely blew over but here's the weird thing this actually does have a connection to my sermon today <laughs> here's the connection point god had saved our life right like we had survived something really terrible and scary this horrible storm and the next day when i was at church the only thing i could think about is my senior pastor is going to kill me <laughs> like that's all i can think about right like God had preserved us. God had saved many lives. And I should have been thankful, but I was so worried that I was going to get fired. Right? Like, I was so worried. Like, man, he entrusted these kids to me, and I almost got them all killed, and I'm going to get fired. The crazy thing was, he was fine with it. He was like, you did the best you could. You know, you, you did the right thing. And he was okay. But the connection point with the text is that as soon as Jacob dies, Joseph's brothers, all they can think about is not Joseph saved our life, Joseph's been taking care of us for 17 years. All they can think about is, now Joseph's going to kill us. Now he's going to get us. And so we see in the story, it brings us back to this big idea, which is really the big idea for the whole Joseph series, and that is that God's purposes, his goodness, his grace can be trusted even in our dysfunctional world, even when you're afraid, even when everything seems to be falling apart. So let's read the story here in Genesis chapter 50. We're going to read verses 15 through 22. And I want you to be thinking about your own life. Man, has God showed me grace? Has God saved me? Has God brought me through these incredible things? And yet I'm still worried about losing my job. Or I'm still worried about this other thing falling apart. And it's going to challenge us to, to trust, once again, that God is good. So Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive 
as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So in the midst of their terror and their fear, Joseph once again says, no, I've forgiven you. I'm going to take care of you. You can trust God is doing something good. Even though you were doing evil, God is doing something good. So he's bringing them back to God's purposes. And so as we move through the story, I want us to kind of point out three things that we see coming from God's purposes. One is that God's purposes can comfort us in our fear. So you may be like the brothers. You may be terrified that vengeance is coming down on your head. And Joseph comforts them in their fears with God's purposes. You can trust God. And then we're also going to see that God's purposes empowers forgiveness. The reason that Joseph is able to forgive them is because he trusts in God's purposes. And then finally, we're going to see that God's purposes secure our future. It enables us to look forward to the future and trust that God is good. So I want to pray for us. We believe that, that God is speaking through his word. And I believe that some of you may be going through something awful right now that makes this extra hard to hear. And so I want to pray that God would meet you in the midst of this. I recognize that we're all at different places, right? Some of us may be in this place where it seems real easy to trust God. Some of you may be in a place where you're like, man, I don't, I don't know. This is the hardest thing I've ever faced. So I want to pray that his spirit would meet us here. The spirit would meet us through his word and encourage us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are good. And we admit as a body, some of us find that easy to say and easy to believe. Some of us, God, are struggling. We're struggling hard. It's, it's hard to feel like we can trust you. We feel afraid. We feel angry. We feel upset. God, we pray that your spirit would meet us here supernaturally, that you would work through your word, that you would work beyond us in such a way that we could see you and see your glory in the story. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So three things. God's purposes comfort our fears. God's purposes empower forgiveness. And then they secure our future. So the first thing I want us to start with is that God's purposes comfort our fears. They comfort our fears. So I want to start off with the fears of the brothers. Kind of start off looking through the lens of the brothers. What was their posture and why they were so afraid? So we see in verse 15, Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead. So that's a summary statement of then stuff that just happened, right? So in chapter 49, Jacob blesses all the brothers, right? Um, we last week looked at chapter 48 where he blessed specifically Joseph and he gave Joseph the blessing of the firstborn through Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So if you missed that, you can go back and listen to the recording. But we saw God, uh, or Jacob give his special blessing of the firstborn, the double blessing or the special firstborn blessing to Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph. Then, all of chapter 49, I've kind of skipped over this and encourage you to go back and read it on your own, but all of 49 is all the different blessings he gives to his other sons. So the other sons are blessed as well. And at the end of that, he dies. And when he dies, he's given this really wonderful, honorable burial by the Egyptians. They all go with them. Remember, he wanted to be buried in the promised land to show that he trusted in God's promises. So they all go back to the promised land. The whole nation mourns for him. It's kind of like a, as if an important king has died and he's honored in big ways. Now he's dead. And now that he's dead and all this honor has been shown to him, and after 17 years of being taken care of, all they can think about is, now Joseph's going to kill us, right? So dad is dead. They're afraid that Joseph is going to take his revenge on them. And so it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to them. 
So there's a sense in which they're right, right? They did evil to him. So, so they're seeing things rightly at one level. Verse 16, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Now, first of all, I just want to kind of take a poll. I did this in the earlier service as well. How many of you think that Jacob actually said that to them? Then how many of you think they made that up? Okay, most of you. That's kind of what I think too. The text doesn't really tell us, but you're kind of getting to know these guys, right? Like, <laughs> that's the way they roll. So, so that's, that's kind of what I think as well. We're not really sure. But when they do say this, hey, Jacob, Jacob wanted you to know that really he wanted you to forgive us too. He's already forgiven them, right? He's already taken care. He saved their lives. He saved their children's lives. He's moved them. They're, they're living in a new city now in Goshen. He's taking care of them. but They're afraid that he's going to kill them. Do you ever do that? Like things are going fine, then all of a sudden something flares up, right? Your anxiety springs up and you're like, oh, God's been good to me. God's been good to me, but now God wants to kill me. You ever, you ever feel that way, right? Like everything's been fine, then all of a sudden you're doubting. You're having a hard time believing in others' goodness. Well, that's happening to them. And what does it do to Joseph? The end of verse 17, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He wept. Why do you think Joseph wept? I think the first most obvious reason to me is he wept because he's already forgiven them and they're dredging stuff up. A more spiritual level, my wife actually came up with this after the first service. She's like, well, maybe he also wept because they don't get it, right? Not just that it's hurting his feelings personal, personally, but like he's sad for them that they're missing out on enjoying the grace and the forgiveness that they've been offered. So Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him. So that part was the message, right? So the message was sent to him. Hey, Jacob said this. And then now they come in and they bow down. So it's like, you know, first layer, the message is given to Joseph. Second layer, they come in and they bow down to him, which is kind of weird in our culture because we don't bow down to people. So this is not worship. Um, This is normal honor and deference that would be given to a king. Um, So we don't have a lot of these things. We're kind of an anti-authority culture. So we don't have a lot of high honor things that we do to give honor to people in authority. I think actually military people maybe understand authority and honor better than the rest of our culture. I was trying to think of examples of this in literature and what example is in The Lion King where all the other animals bow down to the Lion King. Y'all remember that scene? And they're not worshiping him, right? They're not bowing down to him saying, we're praying to you and your God. They're just showing proper deference because he is their king. He is their authority. And so that's what the brothers are doing here. They're bowing down. And so at one level, totally normal, right? It's a normal thing that Middle Easterners would do. And it's just a little odd because of the cultural distance. But why is this so weird? Well, it's weird because they're trying to manipulate him into re-forgiving them. Do you see that? He's already forgiven them. But they're trying to manipulate him into forgiving them. So I think there, there are two big applications here. So I want to back up and say, first of all, do we have a proper fear? Do we have a proper fear? They, at one level, are right to be afraid because they did do evil. Now, the second application is they've already been forgiven, so they should have taken it, right? So we'll get to that in a minute. But first application is, do we have any fear at all over the sins that we've committed? I think as a culture, we're, we're beginning to lose that, right? 
we should have, we should start, any relationship with God starts off with a proper fear of I have committed cosmic treason. I have betrayed the God of the universe who is perfect and beautiful and holy and who's done nothing but be, be good to me and I've strayed off the path. I've done my own thing. I've shaken my fist at him. I've said no to him. I've told him I don't trust him. I've told him that he's not worthy of worship. And so any relationship with God has to start off with a proper fear, with an admission that we are sinners. Sin means literally missing the mark. It it says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that means we don't measure up to his glory and his awesomeness and his perfection. So this is not me saying, I'm a good preacher and y'all are all sinners and need to be afraid, right? This is me saying all of us, me too, you too, all of us have sinned. None of us have done what we are called to do. None of us have been as good and as righteous and as holy and as loving and as servant-hearted as God has created us to be. And so that should start us off in a relationship with God with a proper fear. It's another one of these paradoxes in the scripture because the scripture talks about how the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, right? That's in Proverbs. It's clear that you've got to start there. But then there's this tension where because of the gospel, our fears have been relieved, Right, So in the, the letter of 1 John, it says that perfect love casts out fear. So there's a sense in which we have to start with a proper fear. I'm a sinner and I deserve judgment. I have done evil. We should be able to say what the brothers say. But then what if you've been forgiven? What if the God of the universe entered into our world? What if the God of the universe took on flesh and lived just as all of us have lived, lived a human life, and was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, it says in Hebrews 4.15. What if the God of the universe took our sins upon himself? What if he died a sacrificial death for us? What if he gave himself and rose from the dead and offers us life? What if then we still say, I'm afraid of judgment? What if after all that we still say, you know what, I've got to manipulate you and say that my father, God, said a special thing to you so that you'll forgive me, right? And we're doing this dance and we're, we're doing these other things to try to, to try to add what we can do, to try to add our manipulations and our schemings to God's forgiveness. In a sense, that's rejecting the forgiveness that God has already offered us on the cross. So I know this, this might be a little confusing. Some of you have, have never come to terms with your sin and you need to have this proper fear that they have of I've done evil and I deserve judgment. But once you've come to that, you need to see the forgiveness that Jesus offers us on the cross. Jesus has taken your sins upon himself on the cross. So perfect love casts out fear. So you no longer have to be afraid. You don't have to keep coming back to him, asking him to re-forgive you again and again. When, even in our worship service, when we have confession of sin, uh, it's, it's hard to work through the language of that, but when we're confessing our sin, We're not saying we need to be re-forgiven. We're thanking him all over again for the forgiveness that he's given us on the cross. We don't get forgiven and then unforgiven and then forgiven and then unforgiven. And the brothers are all messed up in their mind. Do you first of all understand proper fear that you deserve judgment? And then secondly, do you accept the grace that Jesus offers to you on the cross once and for all? It's done. As he said, it is finished. Do you accept that? Or are you saying, no, that's not good enough. I need to add my own scheming to that. I need to do a little dance. I need to be more religious. I need to do this and I need to do that to force God to forgive me. So we have to recognize that 
God's purposes, what He's doing for us can comfort our fears. They can make everything better. He said in verse 18, His brothers also came and fell down before Him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And so now we come to the next section where Joseph now is going to be pointing them to what God has done and saying, Now I can forgive you. My forgiveness is empowered because of God's purposes. So that's our second point. God's purposes empower our forgiveness. So let's back it. Back up a little bit again, verse 17. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Do you, do you remember that Joseph, if you've been following the story, Joseph already forgave them, right? He already went through this with them in Genesis chapter 45, five chapters back. And he's been taking care of them for 17 years. He's already forgave them. And he said the same kind of thing in Genesis 45. He said, you sold me, but God sent me. Same paradox he's going to point to here. You did evil, but God was doing good. The saving of many lives. Through my suffering, God is working out good. And it's this tension again that's a paradox in our life that we struggle with. How can God be both good and sovereign and gracious when there's real evil taking place in the world? So Joseph points them to this once again. Verse 18, his brothers came and fell down before him and said, we're your servants. Verse 19, Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? So properly, he says, this is not about me and my power to forgive. It's about God. Do you see that? He's deflecting from himself. A lot of us get all twisted up because we're like, man, I don't know if I have the personal strength to forgive people. And let me just clarify it for you. You don't, okay? You don't. You don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes, but God does. So what God is doing empowers our forgiveness. We forgive because we're saying, God took care of that. I'm not God. This is, I'm rolling this onto God's shoulders. Cast all your cares on Him because He cares for you. So Joseph says, am I in the place of God? Verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. He says, trust God. You did mean evil, right? He doesn't let them off the hook. He doesn't say, oh, it wasn't so bad, right? That's where we get a little messed up when we want to forgive people. We often do this. I don't know if you've ever said this. I know I've said this. Like, it's fine. It's no big deal, right? But I don't know. That's, that's not like full, full octane forgiveness there, right? And you got to be careful how you say this because you could make things worse if you say the wrong thing, right? But, but there's something good in your own mind at least of saying, yeah, what you did was evil. <laughs> what you did was evil and I'm forgiving you because God has forgiven you. I'm forgiving you because this belongs to God and not to me. I'm giving it to God. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. And he's pointing to God's greater purposes. And I've, I've said this before. I've studied theology and philosophy for 25 years and, and I don't know that there's a real good way to, to clarify like how, how is it possible that the world could be full of pain and suffering that you and I go through that really is evil and God is still gracious and good and he's still turning that for good. I don't, I don't know how that's possible, but I know that we're to look to God instead of to look to our own suffering and the evil around us. We're to keep deflecting back to him. We're going to keep pointing to him and that's what's going to empower 
our forgiveness. So Colossians says we should forgive because Christ has forgiven us, right? Because God and Christ has forgiven us, we should forgive one another. Colossians says this in Colossians 3, 13. So this is a basic thing we should do, and we should do it because of what God has done through Christ. So the purposes of God, God intending good, when men and women and people in our lives have intended evil, that allows us to say, okay, it's, it's beyond you. There's something bigger going on. One of my old pastors used to share this illustration of a tapestry. Any of you have ever, ever like woven together a tapestry? Anybody do like weaving, that kind of thing? Some of you have done that. Um, so I've got a picture here of the backside of a tapestry. And it's just a bunch of loose threads, hanging pieces. It doesn't look like anything. It looks wild. It looks unruly. It looks ugly. But the other side of the tapestry is a beautiful design. Now, uh, it's kind of funny. I didn't think about this until, until I started doing the sermon. I don't actually have the picture of the beautiful side of the tapestry. <laughs> but I'm like, hey, this is like real life, right? Like, some of us don't get to see the beautiful side of the tapestry until we go to heaven, okay? So I'm just going to feel better about myself and say, this is good. It's a better illustration this way. Just trust me, right? The other side of the tapestry is really beautiful. Romans 8 keeps bringing us back to this again and again. I keep looking at Romans 8 as we've been in the Joseph stories. Romans 8, 28 says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things. So all the ugly threads that hurt us and our chaos and are often the result of real evil that people have done can be woven together on the front side of the tapestry can be worked together for good. And, and that's an act of faith for us to look at that and say, I trust that God is so big. God is so God that he can overcome evil. And Paul, throughout Romans, keeps pointing us back to the cross. Like that's the number one way that we understand it. So Christians kind of, we walk up to this ledge and we're like, I trust that God is good. I trust that suffering really is bad and evil really is evil. I'm not gonna call it good. I'm gonna say it really is bad. But somehow God can still work good around that and over that and in spite of that. And I look to the cross and I say, God entered into my suffering. God entered into my pain. He joined with us and he gave himself for us so that it makes more sense what Romans 8 goes on to describe because Romans 8 says, it continues this thought of God working all things for good and it says it this way, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So God has this incredible overtime predestining. Again, we don't understand how that works. We don't understand how to make sense of that. But what is he doing with that? He's conforming. He's shaping us to be like Jesus. He's shaping us into the image of his son. So the Joseph, whose life looks a lot like Jesus, who suffered greatly at the hands of men for the saving of many, begins to understand this. God is working good through my suffering. And God can do the same thing in your suffering and in my suffering. God can use you to bless and to serve and to love others and to point to a good God despite your suffering. And again, that doesn't, that doesn't mean evil is good and good is evil. We, we still call it evil, right? He says, it was evil, but God's working good. We look to God and we say, I trust that God is doing something bigger and better. So that Paul also can say in Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So we look forward to this future glory where the tapestry will be revealed. We will see the beautiful side of it. 
And so Dostoevsky is a Russian author, and he has this great quote um, that I found in another book, a great quote from the Brothers Karmatsov. And he's talking about that future glory overpowering the present suffering. And Dostoevsky says it this way, I believe, like a child, that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. As it said in one of the Tolkien novels, all that is sad will become untrue. That's the future we look forward to. Paul says, the present suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. And we know that God is shaping us to be more like Jesus. The question is, do you see that? And as you see that, as you take your pain and you say, that, that's real pain. And as we've said throughout the series, we pray for that pain to be taken away, right? I've suffered and there are things I've suffered that I can see how God's used them for good. But if I was given the choice again, I'd be like, nope, don't want that, right? Because I'm not as strong as Jesus. I say, I don't want to go through that suffering again, even though I can see that you've worked good in it. And so there's a sense in which we can look at our suffering and say, God is conforming me to be more like Jesus and he's using it for good, for the saving of many lives, but we can still pray like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, if there is any other way, take this from me. You can pray that. You can say that. Yet not my will, your will be done. And so that's the wrestling match that we go through in, in dealing with God's sovereign grace and his goodness. We say, God, I trust that you're good, but this hurts really bad. And you're my daddy and I trust you and I'm gonna beg that you would take this from me. But if you don't, I'm going to trust that you're doing something bigger that I can't see, that I may only see on the other side of heaven. I may not see for years the good that you're working out. So here's a really important application of this. The number one application was forgive others because God is doing something bigger, right? You're entrusting it to God. You're not forgiving them out of your own magnum, what's the word? Magnanimous, right? Like you're not saying like, I'm so awesome, I will forgive you. You're saying God is so awesome, I will forgive you. Because he cares for you, we cast our cares on him, right? So that thing that you don't want to forgive, you give that to God and you say, I forgive you to this person. It doesn't mean you invite them back into your life necessarily in the same way, but you forgive them. You give vengeance over. You don't hold that over their head. You forgive them because God in Christ forgave you. But the second, second application of this is we see that God is working good in the midst of our suffering, but that doesn't give us the right to like march into other people's suffering and say, look at all the good God's doing here, right? So I just want to say, be careful. Be careful in how we apply these truths about God's sovereignty and God's goodness, because Romans says we should weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice, right? We should enter into suffering with others. And so we just have to be very careful. It's one thing to see how God has used suffering in your own life for good. It's another thing to go messing around with somebody else's life, right? So you hold their hand, and you cry with them, and you pray for them, and then after maybe you've earned the right to be heard, you can say, I don't know exactly what God's doing in your life, but I know how he's worked in my life. I don't know exactly what he's doing in your life, but I can see how he's worked in Joseph's life. I don't know exactly what he's doing in these circumstances in your life. I don't pretend to know that, but I do know that 
I trust God and I do know that he's good. But you've got to walk through the valley with people. We've got to hold their hand. We've got to cry. We've got to rejoice when they're happy and, and weep when they're weeping. But that's just an important thing for us to keep clear in our lives. When, when someone's suffering, we don't just march in and say, God is good. Don't be sad, right? We have to be careful in how we handle that in other people's lives. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. God's purposes empower our forgiveness. Another scripture that shows this tension of how God is at work even in the midst of the craziness and dysfunction of this world is Proverbs 16.9. Proverbs 16.9 says it this way, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So again, there's this, this tension. We don't fully understand how that works, but we can keep looking to God and say, God, help me. Help, help me with this. Help me with this burden. Help me to trust you in the midst of us, and that empowers us to forgive others. Okay, last point. God's purpose is secure our future. God's purpose is secure our future. And so we see a little bit of an echo in Joseph's life. We're going to look at the, the burial plans of Joseph. We see an echo of the burial plans of Jacob, right? And it's an interesting illustration because what we're going to see is a musical term is theme and variation. We're going to see some sameness between the burial plans of Jacob and Joseph, and we're going to see some difference in the details, okay? Um, and so we see God's purpose to secure our future in verses 22 through 26. Read this with me. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. Um, he really did live 110 years. We trust that this book is true, but it's also helpful and interesting to note that in Egyptian literature, 110 was like the magic number of a full life. And so we see that to the Egyptians, Joseph was a sign of God's grace. Verse 23, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. So he's getting to see his children, his grandchildren, great-grandchildren. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. So just talking about how Joseph got to see his family be fruitful and multiply. Verse 24, and Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So you see that? He's coming back to God's purposes. God will visit you. You're going to be in this other land in Egypt for a while, but then God will visit you, rescue you. That's the next book. It's called Exodus. He will bring you back to the promised land. So he is rooting his plans in what God will do. Verse 25, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So he says, When you do leave here, when you do go back to the promised land, however many years away that is, because we believe that God will do this, then take my bones and bury them in the promised land. So Joseph's put in a coffin. I got a picture here of an Egyptian coffin. And his burial plans, just like Jacob's, are founded on his belief that he can trust in the promises of God, right? And so we've got this sameness and we've got difference, right? Because Jacob said, as soon as I die, go bury me in the promised land as a sign that we can trust that God's gonna bring us back to the promised land. Joseph said, I'm going to die, and in 400 years, take me to the promised land, because God is going to fulfill his promises and take us to the promised land. So this is just a beautiful picture of what happens a lot in the Christian life. Our job is to glorify God. God's going to call you to do that in unique ways. I pressed you when we were talking about Jacob's burial before, and I said, think about your funeral. How is your funeral going to point to the glory of God? And more than that, how is your life? 
going to point to the glory of God. That you trust that God is the one who is securing your future. Do you believe in his promises? Do you trust in him? And Christians can, can do that in different ways, right? Here we see these two men of God living this out in different ways. They both trust that God's going to visit them and keep his promises. One says, bury me right now there. The other says, carry my bones around for 400 years and then bury me later when God rescues you. And that's fulfilled in Exodus chapter 13. You see, it actually says, and Moses took the bones of Joseph because Israel had sworn that they would do this. And so we see that fulfilled. So thinking about how we make our own burial plans, I I encourage you to think more about death and think more about the shortness of your life. I want to think for just a minute about how do we live our lives now well if we believe that God is securing our future, right? Like if we believe in the Romans 8 fulfillment that the future glory It's going to outweigh any suffering that we're enduring right now. How does that affect how we live our lives? And I think two big ways that this affects us is how we spend our money and how we invest our time. So just two questions to think about. How are you spending your money? Are you spending your money in such a way that you're broadcasting all I believe in is this world? Or are you spending your money in such a way that I believe in God securing my future? I believe in this future glory that Jesus is going to bring. So traditionally, Christians would say, we want to invest in the preaching of the gospel. We want to invest in churches and missionaries and ministries that spread the hope that we have in Jesus. Does any of your money go to proclaim this hope that we have in the future that Christ is securing for us? And how about your time? Is your time spent only to invest in this world which we've said this before, there's something right and true about investing in this world, right? Like we're made to live normal human lives. Genesis 1.28 says be fruitful, be multiply, uh, multiply, spread, paradise, spread, Eden, be humans, build cities, build cultures. So that there's like normal human stuff we're supposed to do, but is that all we do? Is that all we invest in? I think where the rubber really hits the road for a lot of us is in the people that God's put in our circle of influence, right? There are people under your care, friends, family members. Do you invest any time in them? Do you spiritually encourage them to hope in a God who secures our future? Or are you just investing in your job, in your house, your own little kingdom? The question is, what, what are you investing in? Do you trust that God is truly securing your future? So we'll wrap up here. This has been a great series. It's been hard for me to let go because I feel like I keep learning more each week. Like I'm just starting to understand Genesis a little bit now at the end of it. Um, But one of the things that we've seen, this overarching theme, is that God's purposes in a dysfunctional world are played out in Joseph's life, right? He's been the predominant character in chapter 37 through chapter 50, what we've looked at. But what's really cool is we see this kind of literary theme in the stories that reflects something that we go through in our life as well, right? Because as we read these stories, it's easy to think it's just about Joseph. Just like in our own life, right? We look at our story and we think, this is my story, right? But we know if we walk with God that God is wanting to draw us to see that, that the story is more, more than just about me, right? And the same way we have these little clues that the story is more than just about Joseph as well. So the blessings that are given Uh, We talked about how in chapter 48, Joseph got the firstborn blessing, right? But then in chapter 49, all the blessings are given. And there's this really amazing blessing given to Judah. And those of you that know your Bibles well know that Judah was given the blessing of kingship. So Joseph is seen really as the hero of all the brothers. 
but Judah is the one who is given the blessing of kingship. And in the Judah story, we see this really interesting story arc, right, of someone who is a rebel. We see chapter 38 of the story. Judah was not trusting in God. He was not doing the right things. But we see him come to a place of repentance at the end of chapter 38. And then we see when he meets Joseph coming to the place of being willing to sacrifice himself for his brothers. And in that moment, we see him foreshadowing the future perfect king that's going to come from his tribe. And so Jacob gives this blessing to Judah and says, Judah, all your brothers will bow down to you. Which is the same language that we've seen come up in it again and again in the Joseph stories, right? He had this dream that his brothers would bow down to him and then his brothers bowed down to him and then they did again and they did it again and they did it again. But there's this like little secret message about Judah that ultimately the brothers are going to bow down to him. But it's not Judah. It's his tribe. The kingship is going to come through the tribe of Judah. Often Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. So then in Revelation it says, weep no more because the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. He has conquered sin and death once and for all. He is is the king that we've been waiting for. And so just as we're reminded to say, man, my story is not just about me. In the Joseph stories, we can say, and the Joseph stories are not just about Joseph, but they point to the Savior, the Savior who suffered for us, the Savior who gave his life so that we can weep no more because we trust that he's conquered sin and death once and for all. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your grace that you've shown us through your word. We thank you that Joseph learned that you could use suffering for your glory, for the saving of many lives. And we thank you that you fulfilled that ultimately through the lion of the tribe of Judah, who came as that king who gave himself for us, who showed us that your posture towards us was not simply one of judgment, but also a posture of grace and forgiveness. So God, help us to see your bigger purposes in this world that is so broken and dysfunctional. Help us to live them out, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.